continuing with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. We are on element three, and this is the fifth and final week on element three. Element three, the Ten Commandments, part E. I have three scripture readings uh, for Jason to read. The Matthew one that he's going to read, Matthew 5 one, there's two Matthew readings, is, is the last scripture on the back of your page, so you don't have to turn there. If you could try to turn to the others, because I did not put them on a PowerPoint uh, and follow along, I think you get more out of it if you're reading along with him. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished." Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after he called the multitude to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came to and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth 
come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 8. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, in order that you may live and go and and take possession of the land which the Father, the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you, Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this, do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Amen. Thank you, Jason. Now, hopefully by now, when he reads that passage in Deuteronomy about statutes and judgments, you are translating it biblically in your mind to case laws. I put before you the case laws, which are examples of what the Ten Commandments means. That's exactly what Moses is saying there. So um, we are going to uh, proceed to to look at these passages and others today as we consider antinomianism versus theonomy, two uh, words which we will define um, part of the anti-intellectualism that, that began to invade the church after the Civil War uh, was this kind of thing that give us cutesy Bible stories and so forth, but we don't want anything that requires uh, study, thought, um, intelligence. Uh, we don't want to take this beyond maybe like a sixth grade level. And that's just, uh, frankly, been a very destructive thing. Uh, Christianity from the first century on was known for its intellectual prowess. And it was really the worldview and the ideas of the early church that smashed the paganism of its day uh, because it was philosophically superior. And uh, even some evangelical commentators, such as uh, J.P. Moreland in his excellent book, uh, Love God with All Your Mind, as he uh, discusses how we lost uh, kind of a uh, 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 the higher ground of, of Christians being on the forethought of theological and philosophical and worldview kinds of thought, 
uh, how that has led to the greatest secular culture in, in the history of, since, at least since the birth of Christ. We have a massive non-theological, non-Christian, completely secular culture uh, whose values, ideas, and beliefs have nothing to do with uh, Christianity. In other words, Christianity is getting the snot kicked out of it, uh, when in fact, uh, it was the assumption of all the writers for the first five or so centuries that the light of Christ would continue to dispel darkness uh, from, from land to land, from heart to heart, from one people to another people, creating a people for, of God everywhere until the knowledge of God co covered the earth like the waters cover the seas. So let's uh, look at how uh, the neglecting and the, and the changing of the approach toward the Ten Commandments into what we're going to call antinomianism today has uh, made that possible, has made that loss of ground possible. Uh, as we said four weeks ago, the Ten Commandments are, are in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. They're repeated in the case laws, which are in most English Bibles. We'll read stuff like testimonies, statutes, uh, uh, ordinances, uh, and judgments. Um, this, the Ten Commandments are summarized uh, in, in uh, both Testaments. And as we covered in detail last week, they are repeated literally hundreds of times. You know, uh, if I say uh, my good friend Josiah Maddox today is wearing a nearly white or off-white T-shirt, uh, I'm not saying something entirely different if I say Josiah's dressed casual in a light-colored shirt. <laughs> uh, it, or if I then say, hey, he's got a top on that's uh, that's you know, off white and short sleeve, you know, well, I'm saying kind of the same things. Uh, I, with all three statements, I gave you a little bit more, but really said the same thing as the first statement. And the 10 commandments are just repeated over and over and over literally hundreds of times in the Bible. And we are assured that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It has become a fashionable idea today that uh, if you've prayed uh, a sinner's prayer quote and you've asked Jesus to come into your life, that uh, whether there's any evidence of that and whether there's any evidence of him being, having fulfilled the law and having written his laws upon your heart and your mind, if there's no change in your character or no pursuit of God or whatever, that you're eternally secure, that is just nonsense. Uh, the person who is truly born again, the person who is truly converted, will receive a new heart and a new mind, and it will become ever more important to you to seek God, to be like God, to take up your cross, to de deny yourself, to follow him. And so, um, and he, you don't follow him in some haphazard, arbitrary way. The Ten Commandments and Christ are actually one and the same. All, he is the antitype of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the, the Old Testament is filled with types of Christ and foreshadowings of Christ. And Jesus says in Luke 24, two times, first to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, then to the gr larger group of disciples in his appearance in the upper room, that all things concerning me in the law of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets had to be fulfilled. 
And he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When Paul says in Romans 10, 4, that Christ is the end of the law, he doesn't mean the law has ended. The Greek word telos, it means he's the purpose and the fulfillment of the law. When he said it's finished, he's saying all righteousness has been fulfilled and all breaking of the law has been atoned for. It's finished. Uh, When you receive the risen Lord Jesus Christ into your life, you receive a new creation that wants to, that, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness and wants to live God's way, which is not left in a vacuum. And in fact, um, we emphasized all of that three weeks ago when we talked about how Jesus, uh, the passage that Jason read first today, included when Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law, but to put it in force. And Paul tells us the law was given because the law originally was given on tablets of stone, external to the human heart, commanding the human heart to obey God, and the sin within our heart could not do it. That's what Paul is arguing for in Romans 7. And so it was never intended that by our own efforts and performance, we would be the end of the law or the telos of the law or the fulfillment of the law. It was always intended to tell us we could never do it, and therefore, we need the Lamb of God. Therefore, we need a rescuer. Therefore, we need the, the Lord himself to be the Lamb. So uh, two Sundays ago, we also looked at how the law brings conviction of sin. Sin is utterly sinful, and it's deceitful. And the Bible tells you, be careful not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And uh the Ten Commandments is, is one of God's best instruments for helping us come out of the blindness that we're all born with. You were born blind. And that's the whole significance of why God in his sovereignty allowed many prophets filled with the Holy Spirit throughout the whole Old Testament to part seas, to uh, part rivers, to throw axes in the water that float. In other words, he's demonstrated through all the prophets filled with the Holy Spirit, his complete mastery of geography and climate and the time-space continuum. He also allowed them to raise people from the dead. But no one until Jesus ever healed someone born blind. Not because God couldn't do it, but because God was giving us a marker, uh, like ant, ant, caution, yellow lights, and so forth. This is the one. This is the only one. Uh, of course, now people have done it in his name since then, but uh, he is the only one that heals those born blind, which is you and me and all of us. And the Ten Commandments are given that you might begin to receive your sight and see what an excuse maker, blame shifter, whiner, proud, boastful, arrogant, I'm the greatest, and I'm the toughest, and whatever else sinful has, has, has captured your heart so that you can't free yourself of it, he's given the Ten Commandments to you as the first step of your guide to seeing your need to be rescued. Interestingly, 
Uh, so one of the things I love about just the whole area of sexuality, we, we covered thou shalt not commit adultery and how Leviticus 18 was case laws about all the different kinds of fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, and all so forth, that all the different things that, that not committing adultery means. One of the things I, I love about the Bible's reality, you know, I heard a theologian once was asked, why is there so much sex in the Bible? It was a lady theologian, and nothing wrong with that. And uh, she said, because there's so much sex in life. I was like, wow, what a good answer. <laughs> you know, it's only obvious. So, uh, you know, when it comes to com being captured by committing adultery, the strongest man who ever lived fell from that. Think about it. Samson killed, uh, now we have we have a pretty a few pretty tough guys and strong guys. And, you know, whenever I need to carry my uh, five-gallon roaster pan, which weighs about 50-some pounds, I just have Logan carry it. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, whenever we need any heavy work done, we bring in Bradbury and so forth. But none of them are even in the same league as Samson. You know, he, you know, pushed down the, the pillars of the Philistine, uh, you know, temple uh, as his last act. He, he, he killed, you know, over a thousand people in like a 10-foot, square-foot area without a gun. He had the same thing that the politicians have, the, the jawbone of an ass. But uh, <laughs> little political humor. But uh, no extra charge for that, by the way. Uh, that's a freebie. So he... Uh, you know, the wisest man in the Bible, Solomon, fell to thou shalt not commit adultery. The man called the man after God's heart, David, who wrote the Psalms for us, fell by, by committing adultery. So the commandments help us to see that we can't do them by ourselves. Then... Uh, uh, Two Sundays ago, we looked at the ongoing purposes of the law, and that reading today from Deuteronomy included that uh, because the nations were supposed to see the law is actually supposed to be what a priest in Israel was, was a lawyer, not in the modern sense, but in the sense of studying in detail the law of God to teach it to the Israelites but he was supposed to teach it to the blind and lost, misguided nations around Israel. And if you look at all the, the, uh, the writings of the prophets, major themes like calling them back to covenant faithfulness, like Hosea, uh, you know, God tells him to marry a harlot as a metaphor to show Israel uh, that they have been unfaithful to their husband and so forth. One, so God is constantly calling Israel back to faithfulness to the law and to its purposes, they've, they've kept it from the other nations. They've not had redeeming the other nations in their heart. They've, in fact, had prejudice in their heart. That's why we, we, we actually know that the today's Christians, it's very doubtful whether today's Christians are Christian because we have segregated churches. And I'm not just on some harp point of my own. The whole point of the New Testament was that in Christ, God broke down all the dividing laws between peoples. 
people groups. He, he healed the whole animosity between men and women, between young and old, between rich and poor, educated and non-educated, and between one tribe or and nationality and another. To make uh, of, uh, of himself a new race born of one regal head, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the only racial problem that should be in the earth is those who are born of Jesus Christ should love one another. That's how Jesus said, they'll know that you're truly my disciples. If we do not love one another, if we don't want to sit together, commune together, have each other over, help raise each other's kids and so forth, then we are not his disciples. That's what he said. The world would truly know you're my disciples by the quality of your love for one another. Are there people in even in your own church that you avoid? I'd rather not sit and talk with that person because whatever reason. Wow. Uh, are, are your closest, most intimate relationships the covenant people of the local church that you're, that you're called to be with? The first John says, we know we've passed out of death and into life because we love their brethren. I hated Jesus freaks before I was a Christian. They really irritated me. And I always got out of their company as quick as possible. Whether they were my parents' Jesus freaks friends or the Jesus freaks at school, I never sat by them. I didn't talk to them. I didn't greet them. I didn't want anything to do with Christians. And uh, after I became a Christian, by the time I was 17 years, let me think, let me do the math. Uh, hold on. No, by the time I was 10 or 11 years old in the Lord, I'd had over 110 different Christian roommates <laughs> uh, because I lived in community and I was always living with people I was bringing to Christ and discipling and then putting them in a more stable house and getting the new ones, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you passed out of death and into life because you love the brethren. The law helps you see the sin of your heart so that you might cry out in desperations, oh, Lord, save me. I'm really, 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 really messed up. And as long as you want to have religious pretenses, and I hope nobody in the church knows that I, whatever it is that you don't want them to know, <laughs> you'll never get anywhere near God. The Lord knows the proud from afar. And as Derek Prince used to say, that's where he keeps them. <laughs> but but when, afar. But when you humble yourself and say, I'm really, you know, I'm proud, lazy, uh, passive, I'm a cheater, liar, <laughs> whatever, then they're starting to be hope for you. All right, so then... This week, we're going to kind of switch gears here and try to begin to talk about this thing of antinomianism versus theonomy for the remaining 25 minutes. I just want to keep appealing to us that we always have a, today at 932, we had less than half as many people as were here by 940, which makes me I have a hard time getting out these messages, which I've spent 41 years preparing, and I guarantee you they're worth your hearing. So... Uh, please try to, if you're one that tends to be late, just think of churches starting at 9, 10 or 9 o'clock when the coffee's ready. <laughs> you know, the coffee starts at 9 o'clock. 
And I do appreciate that we have, you know, um, in our day and age, you know, I was used to in the 70s and 80s, a church where maybe 95 to to 98% of the people were at the Sunday school. And today they say you could never get even 70% of the people at the Sunday school. And we probably get like half of our people at the Sunday school, but I'm I'm never going to be happy with that because we have two excellent gifted Bible teachers in this church. And frankly, I don't know a church, uh, at least in Ohio, uh, that has as good a Bible teaching as what we have here. And uh, really, all it takes is a little planning on Saturday night to say, really, is God really first in my life? Or Saturday Night Live, (laughs) (laughs) which is more important. So I, you know, just want to continue to exhort us, get here on time. I I love, there's certain guys you walk in at 915 and they're already sitting there and they're reading their Bible and they're getting ready and they've had their coffee and try to join that group. Okay. So antinomianism versus theonomy, we're going to define it. We're going to talk a little bit about its history. Mostly, we're going to talk about its ramifications and why it's necessary that we know this. Okay, now, today's reading included Matthew 15, 1 through 20, that if you, uh, hopefully you recognize that it was pretty close to the same reading Emily gave us last week out of Mark 7, 1 through 23. Now, uh, above, under the last scripture under point. Roman numeral two are several statements of Jesus from John chapter 14 and 15. The context of John 14 and 15, starting in in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, for four chapters is John's version of the Last Supper. You all know that the term synoptic gospel means see the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the Last Supper, on Jesus giving us the communion meal, on his, uh, once again, reminding them of his death, of his telling them that one of the disciples would betray him and the others would flee and deny him. And then Peter, of course, uh, says, not me, Lord, I'll never do that. And Jesus is, he's nicer than me. I would have probably just said, yeah, all right. (laughs) And Jesus says, well, Peter, you're all right, dude, kid. But um, he'll deny me three times before the cockroaches or, you know. Uh, so so forth, and uh, and I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers because they're going to all run too. <laughs> uh, um, so Jesus in these passages in the in the Passover supper is talking about the most important things because it's his last time. Before the crucifixion, he's going to talk to him. Now, he knows he's going to talk to him several times after the crucifixion, but he really wants to drive some points home before he dies, partly because they totally freaked out. They lost their faith. They forgot all perspective when he died until they saw him risen again. And he had been preparing them not to do that. It's kind of encouraging if you're, by the way, if you're doing Bible studies with people and you're praying for people and you're bringing people along and, and you sometimes are like, oh God, I've been praying for this person and working with them. I stay up nights preparing and so forth. I just don't think they're getting it. I don't even know if they think it's that. Anymore. Well, take yourself back to Jesus and the disciples and and uh, and then begin, begin to pray that God will pour the, his Holy Spirit upon them because they did get it after Pentecost uh, progressively. 
There were some things they still didn't get until later in the book of Acts. But uh, so uh, rem always remember when you're working with people that uh, in unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain. Uh, if, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do the work, uh, it won't get done. And uh, you, you plant water, but God has to cause the growth. The miracle of life and birth is all in God. So antinomianism just means anti-law. It's righteousness defined by the spirit of fall, fallen, unsanctified men. The idea of antinomianism is the idea that developed after the Civil War is part of a whole package of things we'll study later in the Kingdom of God series called dispensationalism. But not all dispensationalists are antinomians, and certainly not all antinomians are dispensationalists. So, but not all squares are rectangles. Not all rectangles are squares. Uh, I guess I guess all squares are rectangles. But never never mind. But uh, <laughs> sorry about that geometry one one. But uh, bad illustration. But not all rectangles are squares. Let's just leave it at that. So. Um, Antinomianism is the idea that because we've received a new nature in Christ and because the Bible says uh, against such things there is no law and so forth, that if we walk by the Spirit and so forth, we don't need the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are irrelevant and unimportant because we have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, and these sorts of things but we want to leave them sort of nebulous and vague. So love is kind of like what I'm feeling about love. And so love changes with cultures. Love changes with popular opinion. You know, there was a time when the Supreme Court of the United States said that in the Dred Scott decision that African-Americans were three-fifths of a person. <laughs> what? And the majority of people believed it. It was politically correct at the time and now we and, and and no generation can ever see its own uh fallacies and deceptions without the law of god so um antinomianism just means anti-law and it's a is a philosophy that was birthed in the late uh, you know there, there's always been antinomianism in the church but it was a philosophy that captured the so-called Bible-believing Christianity as a result of what was known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which gave birth to the rise of dispensationalism and, and became from a, from a little heresy that was, that was uh, in, in the church in the first century on, that the church was constantly stamping out, it became the dominant theological position of people who claimed to be Bible-believing after 1890 and through 1920 popularized by a guy named J.N. Darby in the 1890s and by C.I. Schofield in the 1920s. And uh, then you buy people like Ryrie in places like Dallas Theological Seminary, Cedarville University, and, uh, John, John, Jim Jones University, and all that kind of stuff. Um, or wait, I'm naming the wrong one. What was the one? Bob Jones. Jim Jones. Uh, he, he, he didn't have a... His his graduation course was Kool-Aid. <laughs> Not such strict requirements until the final. <laughs> all right, but um, all right. So um, 
you know, and I, I probably shouldn't name names, but just so you know that there is kind of a body of opinion out there. Now, theonomy is the idea that God's law still is important. Theonomists do not believe that you're saved by doing the law. And they don't believe that unrighteous men can be legislated by passing laws according to God's law. However, we do believe that God, the commandments of God are eternally true, and they have implications for individuals, families, societies, cultures, and that you cannot break God's law. God's law breaks you. And God has indivisible attributes, and he's eternal. So if something was true a million years ago, it's true today. It never changes. Truth is not relative. My relatives change, but the truth doesn't change. So now, uh, some implications are this. I'm going to give you implications 1A and B, implication 2 and implication 3. Three implications, hopefully, in less than 15 minutes. Um, Number one, whenever you negate the law, you will substitute performance-based extra-biblical legalism. The reason for this this is because you were born in the image of God, and therefore you're a law creature. And as long as you don't necessarily make them ethical and so forth, it's not bad that you might have laws about I keep my weight at a certain, and I do three sets of this and Tuesdays, and I, you know, Thursdays I study, and what you can have laws as long as you don't believe that by the performance of them, by your own initiative and your own wits and your own strength makes you righteous. Being disciplined is a good thing, but at best it can build the forms of holiness. God has to build the holiness. So when you negate God's law, you will substitute things that God doesn't care about. And so you'll do what Jesus said the Pharisees who were antinomians and the Sadducees who were antinomians were doing. You'll strain out gnats and swallow camels. I know this person's ungodly because their bed wasn't made today. (laughs) Many a wife has thought that. (laughs) Because they don't help with the laundry or whatever. And you will have, you know, whether you... You'll substitute like smoking or haircuts or wearing dresses down to your ankle or or something. And you'll think God really cares about things that he doesn't care about at all. And then you'll assign very little value to the things he really cares about. That's what Jesus was constantly blasting the Pharisees for. Not that they had laws, but that they had perverted the law. The word perversion means to use something for something other than what it was intended. We just think of perversion as sexual perversion. But for instance, if you don't use your mind and develop your mind, it's a perversion. If you're constantly taking in video forms of entertainment, which there's billions and billions of studies that say that makes your mind passive and it kind of turns your mind into jelly and so forth, and you don't actually do things like read, or there's so many other ways you could exercise your mind, crossword puzzles, mathematics, uh, debate good discussions of theology with your friends, euchre, uh, things that play chess, things that build your mind. 
uh, then you're not you're not loving God with all your mind because you're not stewarding your mind, for instance, just to give us an example. And um, but uh, per- perversion is just to take something and use it for different than it was intended by the creator. So the Bible says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. One of the things we you have to see is that when God comes, he comes in all his attributes. So the work, whenever we pray God pours out his spirit and these kind of things, and God will advance his kingdom, when God has mercy on some, it's he's having judgment on others. And even the politically correct people who would hate that statement are so hypocritical because, of course, they want the judgment to be on anyone who has absolutes. Except that's an absolute. You know, political correctness is a very narrow totalitarian way of thinking. If you don't just, you know, see it the way they see it, they want you to die. Now, um, the other thing that happens uh, is, um, so you, you'll, you'll get extra, extra biblically legalism is all I'm trying to say. And almost all Christian groups of our day have their own particular flavors of their extra biblical legalism. And some people actually choose their churches by which extra biblical legalism they agree with. Now, uh, licentiousness or lawlessness is the other implication, and it just uh, means, um, um, I should have really numbered these implications B1 and B2, but B, so the second one is law, licentiousness or lawlessness, and uh, Jude discusses, discusses this, so let's read Jude 1, 3, and 4, and notice uh, the underlying phrases there. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, uh, so he's talking to Christians, uh, I found it necessary to write to you to contend, fight for. Um, Draw the boundaries clear. Wars are always about boundaries. All wars are about boundaries. Contend, fight for the faith that was once and for all evolved to the saints. Oh, I'm sorry, I misread that. Delivered to the saints. You know, there's a lot of modern uh, ideas in Christianity that the truth evolved. Dispensationalism kind of believes the truth evolved. And so whatever was in the Old Testament is not that important. Uh, If you study the phenomena, the growing phenomena of the American Eastern Orthodox Church, they're, you know, they're top guys. I've read a lot of their stuff and listened to their lectures and so forth now. And the people ask questions, well, why did God do this or that in the Old Testament? And their answer is, because religion hadn't evolved so far yet. Wow. I'm like, are you kidding me? It was once and for all handed down. You, When you deliver a baby, you don't go, okay, um, blue eyes, 
big nose, lots of hair. No, you know, you can't, you're not changing what the baby is. The baby's coming out, whatever the DNA and the biological development up to that time has made the baby. You're just delivering the baby as he or she already is. For certain people have crept in, crept in, creeps, uh, are creeping in, and they're unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert. That means tw turn, use it for a different intention. Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality in the ESV or licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord. Now, whenever I have like ESV slash NASV, I'm trying to tell you that I put it in the ESV and that's, but the parentheses part was the NASB. That's whatever I list second. Now, perversion is when you twist the image of God. So you are a law person. You can't help it. So you will either have all sorts of extra biblical laws, which will lead to you being self-righteous and judgmental and condemning of those who aren't. Instead of trying to correct them for the sake of love and, and reconciliation to God. Now, this modern idea that truth would be to accept all behaviors and all thinking and so forth is not love in any way, stretch, or form. Hopefully you know that by now. But um, and turning the grace of God into licentiousness is simply what the evangelical community is today. It's saying the law of God doesn't matter. We can do whatever we sense the Spirit saying and doing. Instead of, as Jesus made clear in Matthew 5 and other places, keep, that he puts the law of God into force and gives you the ability to keep it from your heart so you not only don't commit adultery, but you don't even lust. You, don't, you not only don't get uh, kill people, but you don't get angry anymore. Now, here's a statement about point B here. This is from uh, the son of Rusash Rushduni, one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century, I guess. He died in 2002. The result of antinomianism has always fluctuated between lawlessness, that's the second one, and arbitrary rulemaking, which was our first one. He put it in the reverse order of how I listed it. But he's saying the same thing I'm saying. That's from uh, a great website called the Chalcedon Foundation's website, if you want to read on them, in an article that Mark Rushdie wrote called Kingdom Men, Kingdom Law. Now, implication two, because I'm uh, not going to finish today, is uh, pharisaical externalism. This is huge, so I'll do the best I can, and I'm probably just going to pick up where I was, wherever I leave off, I'll pick up next week. If we could get started, like we lost about eight minutes at the beginning that I really wish we wouldn't uh, lose. Um, Pharisaical legalism uh, basically says, I don't need my heart recreated. I need to control my religious environments and rituals. It's externalism. And I'm going to give you some examples of that if I ha can crank them out here. Now, uh, last week's reading, uh, Mark 7, 1, 23, or this week's reading, Matthew 15, 1 through 23, cover the same thing. For from, uh, and they basically uh, help you see 
that the Pharisees had substituted the law of God for the sake of their traditions, i.e., that is, their extra-biblical legalisms. That was what the whole conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees was all about. Jesus was not having any of their extra-biblical legalisms. And the Sadducees, extra-biblical licentiousness. And you basically have the same camps today. The so-called conservative Bible-believing Christianity is full of extra-biblical legalisms. And the mainstream Protestantism and the majority of the liberal theologians of the Roman Catholic Church and and, and, the, and the whole Eastern Orthodox thing, they have extra-biblical licentiousness. That's what their movements are all about at the core. The same thing as the Sadducees. So here's a couple of examples. Uh, jump. Well, yeah, we'll come back to the one in 2 Timothy, maybe next week at this point. Let's read the one in John 9. Now, hopefully you know the whole story. Jesus heals a blind man. The Sanhedrin, which included Pharisees and Sadducees and and uh, um, scribes and so forth, they were all upset about it. They answered, "You, uh, you know." So they put him on trial. Who healed you? Da 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 da. And then he, uh, the the blind man goes, "Well, that's a funny thing, you know. <laughs> this guy healed me, and you don't know where he's from." And they get they they get mad at him, and they show their heart. They play their hand very clearly. Uh, you know, like it's like you know, certain people if they have both powers in the ace, you know, they you know it from the, when they get the cards and how their face lights up. Uh, I think I'm going alone, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know. And uh, they play their hand and they and they say, uh, "You were born utterly in sin, or entirely in sin," in the NASB, or entirely in sins in the NSB. We'll talk about that in in a a minute. We're going to have to end here, I guess, and pick it up there next week. Boy, I would love to give all this stuff to you. I'd love to just teach you for a few hours, really. You need to know this stuff. Um, um, You're born entirely in sin, and would you teach us? And notice they didn't try to change him. They cast him out. Now, that's very important. That's why you in the Bible, you cast out demons, but you reconcile sinners. Because demons aren't being offered repentance or change or salvation. People are. Now, their implication is clearly they didn't think they were born entirely in their sin. They basically had the philosophy, hey, I grew up in church. I, you know, I was an Eagle Scout. I was basically a pretty good person. I never did drugs or whatever. And yeah, and I, I go to church and I've needed a little help from God. From, but but I do all these things, like all these external things. I've gone to church all my life. I've done all these things. And my externalism is what makes me righteous. And we'll just have to end with this. I'm Hopefully I'll. But now, again, that whole thing where I put the NASB ESV. So uh, they both have a point that's better than the other. I would say utterly in sin, which uh, um, uh, entirely in sins, the word enti- is the NASB, and I, I got it backwards there on my notes. Uh, entirely in sins, the word entirely is probably better than utterly because most people don't know what utterly means in our day and age. But the ESV gets it right when they say sin 
because the Greek word hamartia, to miss the mark, there is a difference between sins and sin. So actually saying that you were born entirely in your sins is not what the Pharisees were saying. They're, they were saying you are born entirely in sin, meaning sin has to do with your deep-seated constitutional uh, abiding root-level problem with sin. And that's what religion can never see. That's why often when I'm uh, trying to help someone who's maybe been a Christian a long time, and but they're just not... If you really compare it to the Bible, there's not really enough growth there or maturity in various ways and so forth. One of the first things I'll do is get them reading Romans and other places that'll help them begin to see sin for what it really is. And they're not just a pretty good person and God got a good deal and you walk with God all your life and, and this kind of nonsense. I want them to become deeply, utterly convicted of what a wretch we are. Because that's the kindest, most loving thing you can do for anyone. And that's what the Pharisees could not see. And people, we have so much of this lovey-dovey crap in our culture anymore that nobody realizes Jesus, listen to this carefully, Jesus loved the Pharisees. He died for them. He bled for them. And he constantly corrected them, yelled at them, uh, was caustic to them, offended them in every way possible. And in, this, in the passages Jason read, they, uh, they say, don't you know the Pharisees were offended when you said this? And he's like, leave them alone. That's good because every plant my heavenly father didn't plant will be rooted up. And I'm trying to root up that nonsense. So they could cry out to God for a savior and be regenerated and become a new person and actually be saved instead of going to church all the time and being holier than thou and everything else that legalism produces that's very disgusting and unsightly in the sight of God. When you walk down the street and you see really, really troubled people, our culture is so falling apart. Everyone who walks in our door is a basket case. Some of them have dressed it up better and can hold down a job and keep their marriage together or whatever. They don't see the depth of it. But everybody that you meet is utterly messed up and in trouble. And they don't just need a little acceptance as you are. They also need empowered to grow. And they cannot have the acceptance of God until they stop trying to get it on a false basis of self-righteousness. And that's why Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. And they had to kill him because he constantly reminded them that they weren't doing the law by everything he said and did. And if you don't have some people that want to kill you, you should rethink it. <laughs> I hope your level of love for God makes some people downright uncomfortable because that's the most loving thing you could possibly do for anyone.
I became a Christian by the grace of God 41 years ago, and I was very uncomfortable for a long time. And you've got to get uncomfortable to a level that you get past just caring about the consequences of your behaviors, and you really want to get the ax laid to the root and get it chopped down at the roots and, and become a completely new person. That is salvation. And that's the implication of antinomianism number two. And we will start with that next week, and we will see what the Pharisees did is they held to a form of godliness. They wanted the right prayers, the right rituals at the right times and so forth, and they wanted to control the people who didn't measure up to their standards and get them out. Instead of changing themselves and then inviting people to take up their cross and follow their Savior and change with us. I hope to God you all know that you're miserable, lost, wretched, blind, deaf, dumb, stupid, naked, everything else, and God loves you, and he died for you in that state, and you don't need to change before you can walk in the door of the church. You walk in the door of the church because you cannot change, and you're crying out to God to change you. And so... Now, as Jesus made clear, you can't, you know, his family, his community, that's why we have covenant church membership. His community was those uh, who were hearing the word of God and doing it. So there's closed boundaries there, but he was always inviting people to repent and join the community. And you can come to church all you want, but you'll never really belong till you receive him. He's the door in. And your life will show it when you and and you'll know it and everyone else will know it when it happens. Amen.